0: Our reading this morning is taken from James chapter one, verses nine to 18, and can be found on page 1213 of the church Bibles. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat, and withers the plant. Its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good. Please keep the passage open in front of you. So James chapter 1, page 1213 one, in your Bibles. And let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you that we have your words, the Bible. Thank you, you have spoken and we can read it. And we pray you'd help us to be ready now to listen to you, to read what you are saying to us, to be humble before you, ready to be changed by you. Amen. Any sailor will tell you, That you're in big trouble if you keep one foot on the land and one foot on the boat. I don't think you have to be a sailor to know that that's going to lead to disaster. The problem with the church that James is writing to, or to the Christians that he's writing to, is that they were trying to do that in their relationship with God. They were followers of Jesus, but they were living and behaving just like those around them. The way they spoke, the way they treated others was worldly. And James is saying to them, You must not be like this. Just um, look a little bit later in the letter, if you would. Just keep a hand uh, in the first chapter. But if you just go to chapter 4, verse 4. So just over the page, and you're on page 1215. Chapter 4, verse 4. This is what James says to these Christians. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God therefore anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God so this is the situation they're in they're trying to be friends with the world and they're trying to follow Jesus and there is a word that James has already used to describe this way of thinking this way of living we heard it last week in the reading and the, the term is being double-minded. It came up in, uh, 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 early in chapter 1, and it comes up later on in the letter. This is what they're trying to be. They are double-minded, living for Jesus, but living a lot like the world as well. A foot on the land and a foot on the boat. And you can't be like that, James says. Well, we may be well aware that there are issues in the church at large in which the question is, will the church be like the world or faithful to the Lord? And the big issues are ones of sexuality and gender. Those are the big presenting issues. Will the church be faithful to the Bible or try to sort of do this a foot on the land and a foot on the uh, the boat? But we're in danger, actually, if we think that that is the only area in which we could be double-minded. And actually the book of James highlights a whole load of areas where we might think, oh yes, I'm a Christian, but actually I am trying to live for the world. And he does this in lots of different places, lots of different parts of life. And so we need to examine ourselves in the light of the book of James to say, how are we trying to do this? And it's actually quite an uncomfortable read. And the first area that James hits upon in the letter is that of trials, difficulties in life. He does it right at the start. There's no sort of faffing about, no messing around, no sort of gentle greetings, no, you know, he's straight in on the issue of trials, sufferings, difficulties. And we saw last week in verse 2, it says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Well, that is very different from the world, isn't it? The world doesn't go around telling you, consider it joy when you're facing trials. No. But James says that is how we are to view trials. If you're going to be both feet in the boat of Jesus, you will consider, joy, you consider trials pure joy. They aren't joy in and of themselves. You've got to consider them pure joy. And we heard last week, The beginning of teaching about how we're to go about facing trials with both feet in the Jesus boat uh, and how we can face trials and consider them joy. And we heard that trials produce perseverance in faith. That was one of the things that James talks about. And we saw, he said, when you hit trials, you're to ask the Lord for wisdom. And in our passage today we see more about trials. It is actually a continuation of this theme of how do you deal with trials. So what does James teach the Christian? What does James teach us about how to face trials in a way that is different from the way the world deals with trials? How do we face trials with both feet in the Jesus boat? Well, we've got three points. And they are on the back of your orders of service, so you can follow them there. You can make notes there if you want to. Uh, They'll also come up on the screen. The first is this. Apply wisdom to your wallet. Now, you might think... Ah, what's this got to do with trials? And it does seem like, as you go through the book of James, there are points where James just seems to go complete left, you know, right turn, left turn, you know, just complete change of subject. And this looks initially like one of those. As if James just suddenly, he's been talking about trials, and then goes off, talks about money, and then comes back to talk about trials, because we see that he does the commentators quite rightly say, actually, this all does flow. You've got to credit James with a bit of um, knowledge, a bit of understanding, a bit of intelligence here, that he's not just randomly dotting around all over the place. And actually, what he says about money is part of trials. Because at the beginning, he talks about, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many sorts. And so money represents A trial. In fact, it represents two trials. He talks about those who don't have much money. That is, those in humble circumstances. That's what he says, isn't it? Verse 9, believers in humble circumstances. And that probably is financial poverty. After all, he then goes on to talk about the rich. So it's going to include not having a lot of money, which maybe some here you're saying, yeah, I, I feel that. With cost of living crisis, maybe you're particularly struggling. What does James say about that trial if you're struggling? Well, he says, verse 9, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. James has said, ask for wisdom if you're going through a trial. And here is wisdom for those who don't have much, for those who are in humble circumstances, for those who maybe feel like the world looks down on them. Maybe you feel like that. And James says, how are you to deal with that with wisdom? You are to take pride in your high position. What is that high position? What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about where Jesus positions you, if you're a Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the great privilege of being a child of God because of Jesus. If you're his follower, you call God your father. And, as we've seen before in the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about us as being seated with God in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That is, seated in the place of greatest honour, not because of anything good about you or me, but because of Jesus. When we saw the coronation event, it was quite incredible, wasn't it? All the pageantry, all the people in high positions who were there wearing funny clothes. And coming along, people from different countries there, the, the great and the good gathered I hope that when you saw that coronation going on, if you're a Christian, that you thought, I have a higher position than that. I have a greater honour. And you do, because of what Christ has done for you. You have a very high position. And therefore you can take pride in that. Though the world may look down on you, though you may not have much materially, yet, James says, Take pride in your high position. What about the trial of riches? You might not think that riches would be a trial, and if you think it is, you might think, I wouldn't mind facing that trial. But actually, the Bible says that riches and wealth can be a greater trial than poverty. In fact, there's far more warnings in the Bible about greed and about the danger of riches. Not that riches in themselves are bad, But they represent a trial. Why? Well, because for those who have money, the temptation will be that your money becomes your security. And the pursuit of pleasure, the pleasures of this world, could take you away from God. And James says, what does he say to those who have money? He says, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Why? Since they will pass away like a, a wild flower. He's saying a person may accumulate wealth. You may build up your wealth. Your bank balance may grow. Your investments may grow. You may grow year after year. It may get more and more impressive. You may feel more and more secure in it. And you know what will happen in a hundred years time for all of us? It will all be left behind. It will not provide us with anything eternal. James is saying, take pride in your humiliation. Don't trust in wealth. He's saying, like a plant growing. He says this, doesn't he, verse 11. For the sun rises with scorching heat. We know a little bit about that over the last day or so, don't we? The sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls, its beauty is destroyed. In the same way the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. I wonder if if for you, any of your plants in your garden, if you've got a garden, uh, if any of them are dead now, having had a little bit of sunshine. If you do see, and the grass has started to go brown, hasn't it? As you see that, as you look at that, remember this teaching of James to say actually that is what we are like. We don't last. And therefore, money doesn't provide that eternal security that we desperately need. It is not to be your God. It is not to be your saviour. And therefore, James is saying, apply wisdom to your wallet. Sorry, it's wallet rather than purse or bank balance, only because it alliterates. But um, apply wisdom to your money. If you're in humble circumstances, remember your high position. If you're rich... Remember and take pride in your humiliation. Apply wisdom to your wallet. And yet, this is an area, isn't it, where we can be double-minded? Where we can have a foot on the land and a foot in the boat because we can go, well, yes, I trust Jesus, but also I do kind of like wealth and like putting my trust in that as well. And I do really want wealth. The world says you need money, and with money you get position, and with position you get status and respect. But the wisdom of God says you have a high position in Jesus, and money is a false god. Which do you believe, the world or the word? Have both feet in the boat of Jesus. Don't trust in wealth, but trust in Christ. So that's the first thing, the trial of wealth, or the trials of wealth. Apply wisdom to your wallet. Second thing from the passage about trials. Keep your eyes on the prize. Verse 12, have a look at this. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. James is telling his readers, isn't he? I mean, it's fairly clear there, isn't it? He's saying, look, it's definitely worth persevering through trials because the crown of life awaits you. Unlike the riches of this life, we live for a prize which is far greater, which lasts for eternity. Now, this isn't the only thing he says about trials. He doesn't just say, sort of, hold your nose, get through it, and what's on the other end will be better. He has already said, hasn't he, that perseverance in faith is brought about through trials. Therefore, trials, yes, they produce perseverance in faith, but he's also saying, it's worth it, keep going, because what lies beyond is better, is greater. The crown of life awaits. And that crown of life, again, to go back to the coronation, that crown of life is not probably a crown like King Charles's crown. If you knew that you had that awaiting you, you might not be that delighted because it seemed pretty uncomfortable and pretty heavy. You don't want that kind of crown, do you? No, the the kind of crown that he's talking about here is probably the laurel wreath. It's the, it's the, the crown of the athlete winning at the games. And that is what they do the games for, isn't it? To get that laurel crown, to win and James is saying that crown of life awaits you, follower of Jesus. So keep going. Now you might react with suspicion. Sometimes we do react with suspicion when something in the Bible says to us, actually you're doing, you can do this for your own reward. Do you get sort of a little edgy about that? That, that the Bible might say actually you're doing this for yourself, for a reward for yourself. You don't need to be worried about that. Jesus has no problems in saying, actually, there's a reward for those who are faithful. It comes up several times in the Bible. So we don't need to worry about that. In fact, it's a great thing, isn't it? To say there is a reward for those who persevere through trials. It is the crown of life won for you by Jesus. And you look forward to that. Now, yet again, can I suggest to you that this is another area where we can be tempted to be one foot on the shore, one foot in the boat. Because uh, we can be tempted to think, oh yeah, the Bible says there is glory that awaits. But is it, is that really true? In your prayer times even, or when you read in your own Bible times, things in the Bible about future glory, aren't you tempted at times to think, well, yes, that is what the Bible says awaits, but... Maybe it's not real. Maybe, maybe the atheists have it right and there's nothing beyond this life. Or maybe others are right to say that, well, everyone goes to be with their loved ones. Or maybe there's reincarnation. And therefore, even as we read God's word and we feed from it and we read about glory that awaits, we're tempted to be one foot in the boat, one foot on the shore. That we go, well, yeah, we hear that, but maybe it's something else. And you know what? It's not surprising if we're like that, that we struggle when trials hit us. Because we're being double-minded on this. And that's what James has already said, isn't he? Those who are double-minded, he says in verse 6... He says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That can be us, can't it? That when trials hit, when difficulties come, we get blown around all over the place because we think, oh, I'm not sure, is God really real? Is he really with me? Does he really love me? And of course we struggle because in our hearts we're being double-minded. We're kind of going, well, there are the promises of God, but I'm not sure that they're totally true. And Maybe the world's got it right. And Maybe there isn't glory to beyond saying you find it easy to be double-minded on this and James is saying don't be like that trust the promises of God now how do we know that there is glory that awaits beyond this life how do we know where's your confidence is it not in the fact that Jesus died and rose to life again the evidence for that. The fact that he rose to life again and that all who trust in him have their sins forgiven and will themselves be raised to life again. It all rests on Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what Ken Jones was saying in his testimony as well. He talked a, a, a little about Jesus, his death and resurrection. That is the cornerstone, isn't it, of our faith? It's Jesus. Go back to him. Is it true? If it's true, then both feet in the boat. Don't doubt it. And that is how we will go through trials better, with our eyes on the prize. And so we come to our last point, third point. Remember that God is good. Verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. James now deals with an understandable wrong way of thinking uh, that his readers might be taking. He says, don't say, when trials come along, God is tempting me. Now, I reckon that might be an idea that's crossed your mind when going through difficult times. Doesn't it sometimes come into your thinking that you might come to the conclusion that God is trying to make you fail? Have you ever thought that? Or that he's looking at you and thinking... I know, I'll put this in your way. See if you can deal with this. Will you fall? Uh, If you've ever watched uh, I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, there's a trial at, at one point called the cyclone. Which the contestants look forward to doing. If you've watched it, it it's it's good fun. It's um, it's an inflatable slope, big inflatable slope, and the contestants have to try to get up the slope carrying stars, and they each have to be positioned at different places holding a star. At by at the end, they all have to be in place. And as they try to go up the inflatable, of course, there's soapy water or whatever that's fired at them through cannons, water cannons that try to knock them down the, the down the slope. And there is a point when a deluge of water floods down the inflatable and always knocks them out. Knocks them flying, knocks them out. It doesn't knock them out, but it knocks them flying down to the bottom and they've got to get back up again. And I wonder whether sometimes we think God is a bit like that. That as we go through life, it's like God is standing there with the water cannon trying to knock us down... And we are frightened that at some point there could be the deluge that God will send and we will be sent flying. And James is saying, don't think like that. It is not true. Don't say, God is tempting me. That is, God is trying to get me to fail or fall or sin. No, in fact, he says, he teaches us where sin comes from. And it's so uncomfortable because it's so close to home, isn't it? So he says, verse 14, But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. In other words, where does sin come from? He says it comes from within. It's our own evil desires that bring about sin. And the image he uses there, the illustration he's using, is one of a fisherman with bait on the hook. And the fish swimming along presumably it gets caught because the fish wants to eat the bait i mean if you're using bait that the fish don't want to eat you're not going to catch anything are you but the fish gets caught because it sees the wiggly worm and wants to bite it you and i fall into sin not because of god god isn't tempting us in that way, trying to get us to fall it's our own evil desires that come up that mean that we want to sin And that's instructive for us, isn't it? Because we are tempted to lay the blame for our sin in all kinds of places, for our wrongdoing, in all kinds of places. We'll blame our upbringing, our circumstances, the pressure we're under. We'll blame our spouse, our siblings. We'll blame anyone. We'll blame the person in front of us in the queue in the shop. We'll blame the postman. We will blame anyone, and we will blame God, won't we? We'll say, God, you made me this way. You sent those things into my life. It's your fault. But God is not like that. God is good. We deflect the blame, but James teaches us that sin happens every single time because of our evil desires. The problem is not in God, but in us. And so he sets up the sequence, verse 15. He says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. But the initial cause is our evil desires. So James is saying, be careful in your trials, in your temptations. Don't ascribe evil to God. Not to think God is tempting you to sin or that God is out to get you. But rather, verse 16, I think this flows straight on. It's all part of the same argument. Verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So James is saying, no, the good things, they come from God. He said, don't be deceived. Now, we're likely to be deceived, aren't we? Because we're likely to think of it as the other way around. We can tend to think the good things in our lives come from us. I did those. I made those. I booked that whole day. I built that house. I did that thing. I have that career. I did those things. And the bad things come from God. The temptations, the sins, they've all come from him. And James is saying, no, it's the other way around. The evil comes from us. The good things come from God. God is consistently good. He is always good. So when you're going through trials, don't think this is from God in an evil way. He's sending evil into my life. And this explains why James then says that God does not change like shifting shadows. I've often wondered, why does he include that? I mean, yes, to say God is good and sends good things, but why does he say God doesn't change like shifting shadows? The context tells us, doesn't it? Because the issue here is trials. And our temptation will be to think that when difficult times come along, maybe God has changed, like shifting shadows. We know about shifting shadows Yesterday and today, don't we, with the hotter weather? You know, we, we spent a while yesterday getting the parasol out, putting it away, getting it out, putting it away, because it was sun, and then it looked like maybe it was going to rain, and then it didn't. And you know what it's like. You go out into the garden, and you think, oh, I'll sit in the sun for a bit, and then a cloud comes over, and you think, oh, I'm going to do that. You go back in, and then you come back. You know what shifting shadows are like. And James is saying God is not like that, He is good. All the time. So when trials come, don't think to yourself, Oh God, you've changed. God doesn't change. And most importantly, we can see he is on our side because of verse 18. It says, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So you go back to Basics. What has God done for you? If you're a Christian, what's God done for you? He chose to give you birth, new birth. Not just, you know, being born physically, but new birth to become a Christian. How did it happen? How it happens for every Christian, through the word of truth. That is that you heard the message. You heard the message of the fact that we are sinners deserving God's judgment, that Jesus came into this world 2,000 years ago to deal with sin. He came for sinners like you and me, died on the cross to take our punishment so we could be forgiven, so we could become children of God, and that by trust in him, you could be forgiven. You heard that message and you responded to it. Have you responded to it? If you haven't yet, you could respond. You could respond to it today. And if you have responded to it, James is saying, remember, it's God who did this to you. It was his work. It was his work in Ken Jones, his work in Toby and Justine and Zoe. It's his work to give you new births. He did that, and he doesn't change like shifting shadows, so he's not going to abandon you. He's not going to send evil your way. He's good. And therefore you can trust him in the difficult times. That even they... Your good. It can be very hard to feel that, but they are for your good because He doesn't change. He loves you. He's brought you to new birth. He's not going to let go of you now. He sends the trials that we might be built up in the faith. So here we have James' teaching on trials. And how we as Christians, we as a church, can respond to them and respond to them wholeheartedly. Not a bit worldly and a bit for Jesus, but actually wholeheartedly for Jesus. I wonder what you need to change today, or thinking maybe that you need to change in the light of what we've read we need to apply wisdom to our wallets, keep our eyes on the prize, and remember that God is good in our trials. Can I encourage you, just take a moment now. I know you're tempted to think, ah, he's, he's finished. Uh, we're done. We can move on. It's almost lunchtime. Take a moment. Can I encourage you to take a moment just now and say, what is it in particular from this that you need to change? Maybe in your thinking, maybe in your actions. Just take a moment, I'll give you a moment of quiet.